0: Welcome to episode number 74 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. We bring you the latest and greatest in internet marketing every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher Radio. We bring you the latest and greatest without any ads, promotions, pitches. We also do it while we're drinking some fancy cocktails, which by the way... What are you doing this week?
1: I'm actually doing an aviator. Gotta switch it up a little bit, which is a little bit of gin, a little bit of maraschino liquor, lemon juice, cream de violet, and a little bit of lemon peel.
0: What very manly that? drink. <laughs> yeah, you have violets in there. <laughs> Sounds What'd very see, fancy. actually, though. How about yourself? <laughs> so I had to switch it up as well. Last week on the podcast, I mentioned that I would take... Sex on the Beach recommendations. suggestions. Luckily, it wasn't a Sex on the Beach. It was an Old Fashioned, which is something I've done before on this show, okay. albeit maybe 50 episodes ago. So I'm doing an Old Fashioned on this one. I also did three or four last night. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why my voice is a little rough right now. Now, are you a fan of with or without sugar? I don't do the sugar. Okay. Yeah, me, I mean, me I, I don't think it... The sugar cube, I think, is the normal mm-hmm. way you're supposed to do it. I feel like it never uh, dissolves anyway. So what's I the think point of this? To, like,
1: muddle it with the
0: orange, perhaps? I, I, yeah, I try that. It doesn't work <laughs> anyway. You end up just with grains of sugar at the bottom of your drink. Mmm, sand. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I just I skip over that whole part. Anyway, enough about what we're drinking.
1: So we're going to return to email land. You're going to tell us a little bit about personalized email send times. And what does that actually do with conversions? Testing for agile and small business environment. You know, we talk about testing a lot on this podcast, but how do you need to conduct online marketing when you are a small business? You need to make decisions. Let's go. How do we do that? Companies dropping blogs for social networks. Is that actually a thing? If so, why would they might be doing that? And it would not be an episode if we do not cover what's happening in Mountain View with our friends at Google. So we'll wrap it up with the Google corner. First things first. So take us Take us to email land, and what is up with what does personalized email sends even mean? And should I even care? No,
0: you shouldn't. <laughs> anyway, next this is topic. <laughs> next topic. Let's just move on. This is a blog post I found on uh, Marketing Sherpa's blog. Sort of friends, acquaintances <laughs> of the show, maybe is a way you could put it. No, you could say friends of the show. This is something that they had someone present at one of their latest events, Email Summit Vegas. Um, come on. Yeah. Exactly. The sort of the concept that they were trying to get across was micro personalization in their email marketing. And this specifically referred to send times. What they had done was they created a few personas for their customers based on engagement in their email marketing campaigns and based on those personas sent emails to those people based on specific times. So, you know, we know that these people would probably do better with the send time of X. We'll send that to, the, to that segment. And the results of this were obviously they were able to increase, I think it was clicks. So interesting that they engagement. didn't mention opens, but, you know, 8.2% increase in unique click rates, which for a lot of companies can be a massive increase over time. But one of the takeaways that I got from it, and this is just my sort of inner bearded marketer because skepticism is part of being a bearded marketer. My inner bearded marketer coming out when I listened to this sort of stuff, I immediately hit it with that skepticism. Okay. Why, what are the potential reasons for why you got an increased click-through rate on your emails based on, you know, sending at different times to different personas? And are those results likely to hold over time. I think this is something that a lot of marketers don't take into consideration, unfortunately, when they run a lot of different marketing tests. So in this example, I think probably a huge reason for why they got an increase in in interaction with their emails was simply because you had now just sent your emails at a different time. I'm used to expecting your emails, depending on how regularly you send them, And now you send them at this weird random time that I wasn't expecting. Like, for example, I think this is, and I think this was a B2B setup. And one of their personas got an 8 p.m. email time. So definitely not like the norm for a B2B email company. So if I get a B2B email on my work email address at 8 p.m. I'm thinking something crashed. Right. I'm much more likely to open it then be mad that it's actually not important. Right. But the next time you try to pull that, I won't be Trixies I won't be tricked only, on that one the next it time. Wants. So in that in this particular case I think that that's probably something that should have been mentioned and talked about in mm-hmm. the blog or you know in whatever in the presentation they were giving but I think that this spans beyond that again. So, you know, examples of this I think happen with paid search a lot. Mm-hmm. People will test a new Ad copy and like in you know, wow, we've increased click-through rates by twenty percent or something like that. But wash their hands, we're done here. But right, is that gonna hold? And mm-hmm. in sort of paid search, the the environment changes all the time because you have all these other competitors. So things are always changing. And the fact that you've just changed something, you're different than everyone else. Well, give your competitors a few days, they'll catch up and the changes will, you know, everyone else be kind of doing what you were doing if it sure. worked well. And now the increase that you got in click through rate actually has been sort of washed away by everybody else, sort of compensating for it. Another example I see a lot with uh, user-based websites are websites that get users that come back a lot, even if they're not necessarily members. Changing something can get a lot of action on it pretty quickly. Ooh, uh, you know, different. Yeah, we just changed the color on this banner. Mm-hmm. And this leads to the sort of those case studies I know you hate where it's like, oh, we changed the color on something and got this drastic increase in something. Those assholes. Right. Well, you know, that may be valid, sure. right? For that it, you know, short specifically, window. Specifically, right, in that three-day window or one-week window or whatever you ran that for, that's a statistically valid increase in click-throughs or whatever actions you're trying to measure. But it's going to completely fall off basically in the next two or three weeks and be back at baseline because the gain was completely just because you changed something. And it's Mm -hmm. not because you made the marketing better. It's just that it was a change. Well,
1: and this is actually a phenomenon that we notice in testing as well. Like when you run online tests, you'll notice that there's this warm-up period where potentially the control or treatment depending on what you're doing will initially start out really strong out of the gate. But then over time, you'll start to see your stats normalize. And that's that honeymoon effect that you're talking about and people not taking into account that. I mean, that's not the sexy stuff to talk about when you're doing Mm -hmm. these case studies, you know, it's the 300% gains and and whatnot. Uh, But, you know, as a marketer, to your point, you know, you need to take a step back, think about these things. And I think personalization is obviously something people should pay attention to. And it does have its merits, especially now that we have very accessible tools that will continually optimize. So maybe for that person, 8pm works well. But now there's a computer and an algorithm in the background that's always evaluating, okay, so for this next send, we're noticing a trend, 8pm is falling off for Aaron, let's try something else. So I think personalization is still worth your time. Just be careful getting caught up with a lot of these case studies about, yeah. you know, how it's going to potentially revolutionize your team. And
0: tool. just make sure that you analyze your results through that filter of what you are just sort of mm-hmm. talking about. Just because we're getting this now doesn't mean it's going to stick around for even the next time we try to run it next sure. week or any other time in the future. So I think that's just, you know, another industry wide problem. I think people get awfully excited about lifts and gains and don't realize that these things change all the time because it doesn't fit into our worldview of how we want to look at things because we have <laughs> stats on everything, right? Sure. So they should be perfect and, and stay the same way all the time. Absolutely. Anyway.
1: So let's move right along. So, so we get this question actually and we've pondered ourselves. I would say our client mix, we have some enterprise clients who old names, Trusted, well established, lots of traffic. Then we also work with these more startups, smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses. And the question that we get a lot is: You guys talk a lot about the scientific aspects of marketing, running tests, things like that. Well, you know what? I got ants in my pants, and I can't wait around for that decision point. You know, we want to run a test, and we might find that actually to have a very valid test, we need to run two hundred thousand people through this. Well, it's like that's going to be like six months, and yeah. I can't wait that long to make a decision. Or you know, we're working with a PPC campaign or an online uh, marketing effort. And people don't want to wait around for a month or two to see how things shake out and how we need to steer our strategy. So I did want to take a little bit of time and talk about, you know, as a smaller maybe startup business, how you need to treat testing and and some things to consider. And I think it really revolves around as a business you have to first establish how much risk you're willing to take on. I mean, there are ways where we can pare back and test things, but you have to come to an understanding of how much risk that you're willing to tolerate. And I would also say as a business, you have to be okay with saying, we have tried some things, we have found this to work for us, but that's not to say that other things will potentially not, even the things that we actually tried and failed in the past, because we had to make a fast decision. And we made the call on what we had available. We did the best that we can. But as things progress, maybe we need to return back and retest some of our ideas that we wiped off the table for the time being. But make sure that's actually still the case. I mean, we were running a test recently. And you brought up the fact of, you know, we haven't really run a ton of people through this. But it is very obvious the trajectory of where this is going and for this small business that maybe doesn't do a ton of volume there is also this cost of waiting when we are testing a new subscription path or where someone can buy something like a products page or whatever and we can see very clearly in the data that it's trending the right way for that small business, you know, if we're doubling revenue, even though that test or that idea might not be at extreme confidence, what we would call, there's a cost to them, a very real cost of waiting around. And that's what you have to decide as a business is how much risk am I willing to take on to make those snapped judgments to try to reap as much benefit as possible. But understanding that You know, maybe I might be jumping the gun here and and making a rash decision, but I can't really necessarily tolerate waiting around for the optimal situation to make every one of my marketing calls. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I think one of the big differences there is, you know, in that example you gave of it, it seems very clear that this new version of whatever marketing that we're trying to do is is working better we're just going to make the early call because we know it's working better, but we're not going to be 100% sure how much better it is. And I think that's the big call of the difference there Mm -hmm. is... It looks like it's maybe doing, like you said in your example, twice. You know, we're getting twice the revenue from this new version. We'll call it now. It's clear that it's better. We can't for sure say that it's going to be twice as good as the other one, but we know it'll be better. And that's enough for a small business who continuing to run this test is going to cost you a few thousand dollars a week. Every week we try to get closer to statistical validation on this is costing you a lot of money. And it's worth it just to say, yeah, we have a better version and let's roll with that and yeah. let's let's reap those benefits now and let's move on to something else that could potentially have more Maybe impact. we'll
1: revisit. Right. But, you know, and to your point, it's a responsibility of us as marketers to not also share PowerPoint decks that say, we noticed that we doubled revenue, and that's what we expect in the long term. To be quite honest with the situation, you need to say this is what we observed during the test, but we haven't run this long enough to where we know this is going to be better. We're a little bit unsure about the long-term viability of this actual doubling of revenue that we see. We just know that it's positive, and for us as a business, we just need to move on because we got our shit list is huge. Right. You know, we're not just trying to do this marketing strategy. We're trying to revamp our products. We might be launching a new feature or whatever, and we just need to go because there's not just the cost of waiting around every day that we see this process that's doing twice as well, but there's also a price in delaying development or launching other things that might be in our backlog. And you just, it's a balancing act that some yeah. people need to think through. We talk in more utopian terms sometimes, but I think that. You know, businesses do need to have those conversations of what are they willing to tolerate because we understand there is a cost there and you need to understand that as a marketer as well.
0: Well, and I think as a small business, that is your the leg up or one of the leg ups that you have, legs up, I guess, <laughs> that you have over the larger companies, right? You can make those calls early and quickly because I don't need to be able to map out how much I'm going to be selling in the next 12 months because I'm not a publicly traded company and my, right. my budget, my ass isn't on the line. If we don't hit certain figure numbers. We're just trying to to do the best we can right now. Right. And making calls early sometimes, you know, falls right in line with with that mentality.
1: Moving right along, because I think we spent some decent time there. But I would say actually give us a call, 904-270-9603, or you can text us there if you are socially adverse. As a small business, do you struggle with that? You know, how do you balance that agility with risk and being confident in what you're doing? Let us know maybe what you struggle with in We can potentially showcase it maybe on the next podcast and walk through, you know, what our thoughts might be. But moving right along, there's been some reporting, some talks about companies that say blogs, that's a whack. We ain't doing that no more. And they're just turning to social media. So wanted to talk a little bit about that. Is that something that we
0: should be doing or... Uh, is there some caveats there to be aware of? So, why don't you kick us off. I'm going to open this by putting you on the spot with a couple of questions. Number one is: When do you? When would you say, in your opinion, that blogging took off for companies? What year would you put that at? I would say 2008. Well, uh, interestingly enough, that's the beginning of this study. Yes, but I think that that's early. 2008, 2009, something like that is probably where I would peg that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the the blogging platforms got popular and that stuff started to sort of take off. I think a few years after that, maybe maybe we're talking the end of 2011, 2012, social media started to really blow up. So basically this study, this is a study done by University of Massachusetts Dartmouth Center for Marketing Research. Smart people there. Friends of Sounds, the show. That's a very long name of a whatever. You're a two-liner study on division the business card. That you have, Yeah. <laughs> so this is a study they did to sort of look at what are the Fortune 500 companies doing right now in the world of social media marketing and running blogs and where are they focusing their efforts? And what are the differences between industries and, you know, just what's the breakdown? What's the real, real? So I wanted to ask you one more question and then I'll get into some of these these stats and some of the analysis that I take away from it. In 2013, what would you say is the percentage of companies Fortune 500 again that are actively running a corporate public facing public facing blog? Would you say 10, 20, 30,
1: 175? I think that's around
0: 30-ish percent, Okay, 34, 5 percent. That's astonishingly close. <laughs> and I'm going to stop playing these damn guessing games with you. I on this love sh- these things. <laughs> so it's 34 percent, Okay, which is probably right damn okay. in line with 175, whatever it is you said. <laughs> the reason why that this is sort of made news. So one in three, basically in 2013, were running these blogs. Uh, here in 2014, it's dropped to 31 percent, the first drop ever. Since they started doing these things from I back think people just write blogs because they feel like they have to and they have no idea why they should. So for reference, in 2008, it was 16%. Okay. So we're still significantly higher than mm-hmm. back then. Um, but I wanted to, you know, talk about maybe why that is. Their takeaway is basically blogging has dropped among the Fortune 500s, but usage of social networks has increased significantly. And I wanted to talk a little bit with you about why maybe that is. I have my own thoughts. Number one, I think on that list is simply because blogs can be a pain in the ass to maintain. Oh, yeah. We actually had to hire someone else to write articles and uh, manage comments and a bunch mm-hmm. of other whatever. But man, with my Twitter account, I could sit down for about two hours and schedule out 200 tweets sure. that will run for the next six months and done. Mm-hmm. You know, wash my hands of that. And that's it. And, you know, the same sort of applies for a lot of the other ones. I mean, you know, the ones like Facebook, maybe there's a little bit more content if you really want to do that and you can go down that route. But, uh, you know, things like Instagram and Twitter, those are super easy ways to get some junk content out there and not really have to measure anything. Whereas a blog, obviously, there's a lot more to it. I also wanted to talk a little bit about, I think, measurement of engagement rates is something that a lot of these corporations don't take into consideration. So from this study, I think even the people in this study aren't getting this right. Okay. So to back up, I think some other reasons
1: okay, why yeah, maybe blogs have gone by the wayside is one, they've realized with social media, I can get a better direct connection. With blogs, it's this piece of content and you know hopefully people comment or whatever, but there's really this Stronger sense of anonymity. A lot of social channels, there's a, a very direct and vibrant dialogue that happens between. So if I'm going to invest my efforts and I'm looking at this as more of a PR or an investment into marketing directly to people. I think that there is a probably a stronger or more interesting case to be made to doing stuff like Twitter where I can interact with that audience. I think that there is a also a negative to that and that we've seen multiple cases where social media Justice League or whoever get into very quick trouble on social media and that can snowball quite quickly. So I think do think there's kind of a risk there. I would also say I think another reason that has caused blogs to go by the wayside is really their SEOs. Benefits, you know, for a long time they were treated as kind of this ad hoc PR release. Let's, you know, use this for a bunch of links, and we're going to jump up in search engine result pages. And it was just hoarded out, and Google stopped respecting it as much. And I think a lot of companies are looking at it and saying, social media is taking a lot of human capital. We have to have people that monitor that stuff. Curate it and report on it. So if we're going to invest our human capital, let's maybe shift away from blogs and move more into the social channel because we think our return investments better there, but also kind of that PR aspect that blogs really served for for a long time you know, the value as, as it relates to SEO, there might have been diminished more so than it was, you know, in the past.
0: Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. And I mean, you know, along those lines. So in, part of this study is they tried to analyze uh, which percentage of blogs are active and air quotes mm-hmm. here. But I think the problem is the way that they sort of defined active. And I think this sort of hints at what you're talking about is, you know, the way that I think some of these Fortune 500s define active as well as the people in the study is an ineffectual way to sort of define how active my blog is. Whereas if I set up a Twitter or Facebook account, it's pretty much off the bat going to be active because I'm tapping into an audience Mm -hmm. that's somewhere else. So the way they defined active here in this study is, in quotes, are kept current, take comments, have RSS feeds, and take subscriptions. These blogs have frequent posts on a range of topics and then they end this by saying that these companies who fit that definition are using blogging uh, effectively, which okay. I would disagree with almost entirely. <laughs> those are your metrics, basically, that they are using a blogging platform and that they post to it regularly makes it effective. I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's not the right way to be looking right. at that. So, But if you use those same sort of metrics on, like, maybe, say, a Twitter or a Facebook, maybe that is sure uh, what you, know, you could consider being effective. Because if I do post regularly to a Twitter or a Facebook, and I'm a Fortune 500, it's pretty much guaranteed there's gonna be interaction on it. Whereas, and again, you sort of have to think about what is a Fortune 500. I mean, those are a lot of some very large companies. I'm not going to read Walmart's blog, but maybe I'll potentially interact with Walmart's social feed if I go there and it's terrible like it always is. <laughs> maybe I'll complain on their Facebook account or I'll sure. mention them in a, in a tweet. tweet. Maybe they'll get back at me or something right. like that. So just an interesting shift. Obviously, you know, again, this is Fortune 500, so this isn't going to apply to a lot of other companies, but it's interesting to see how a lot of those larger companies have shifted away. It's taken them some time from the strategies that people started picking up many years ago and have sort of gotten into the, the weeds of social networking like everybody else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my comments before we kind of wrap this up, I think the problem that people get themselves into is when it comes to blogs, indifferently than social media, they feel like they need to start this cadence and post to it very frequently. And I think the medium in which you're publishing content to on a blog is different, especially for Fortune 500s. And I feel like if some were to be okay with, we're not actually going to post that often. But when we do, people are actually going to talk about this because it's obvious we spent a lot of time. And this is actually interesting to read. Mm -hmm. This isn't just some company corporate digest that we're just pushing out like as part of our newsletter. An interesting case, to me at least from a company standpoint, is OKCupid's blog. They have some really fascinating blog posts about things that they notice from their visitors. They work really hard to come up with very interesting headlines, but that the whole article actually follows with some decent content that even if you're not into online dating or really anything else that they're doing, they're still very fascinating reads. And I think that if more companies took that stance, which is a little bit risky, I mean, some of their topics are bordering on, I can't believe a large company is actually doing right. this. Uh, but I think that you would find more value out of your blogs and, and actually recoup some of those things that have diminished. Like that, that's when you build some serious links. And I think to your comment that you've talked about with me a lot is, as a company we want to invest in some evergreen content. So when we're looking at our blogs, we want to put out stuff that people are going to be linking to for a long time. These are going to be steadfast foundational content pieces that people come back to time and time again. It's not necessarily about here's our volunteer day and here's what we did. Okay, that's great. But if you're going to use a blogging platform, I think you need to retweak your strategy. And what you would do on a social channel is not necessarily what you would just copy and duplicate on a blog to get
0: that same sort of result. Since you mentioned OkCupid, I feel the need to mention this really quickly before we move on to our Google corner, which I think is... What's next, right? OkCupid was, I guess, I don't know if you saw this or not in the news. They recently took some flack because they were running a test, similar to how Facebook got in a lot of trouble for tweaking people's news feeds by showing negative stories to see Mm -hmm. if that influenced their potential postings. OkCupid got in trouble by doing matches purposely... Uh, with people who you statistically were not supposed to be matched with to see what the results of that were. And people are up in arms. So I just thought that was like an interesting... You know, Facebook's thing was obviously everyone hates Facebook, but OkCupid doing something like that is... I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts initially just off the top of your head with some of that stuff. I think it's... I think people get butthurt (laughs) for stupid reasons. (laughs) Like you're using
1: someone else's platform. And I understand... There's things that you expect, like privacy and things like that. But in that case, I mean, I, I honestly feel, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a you know a marketer and a, a business owner, but I feel that's within their right on their property. I mean, they're not like selling your information. Well, and let's say the information that came out is actually, oh, well, we actually need to tweak our algorithm because we're finding that people that should not be matched together are actually working out. So as a business we need to retweak some of the metric points that we're looking at to match people up. Would people be that much angrier if that were the case? No. They would say that's actually typical business, but because of the way the story and people pick it up and like
0: to bitch about things, you know, that's not the story that we read. A couple pieces of input on that. One is, I mean, I think I agree with you. I just think that companies should stop publishing this shit. Why are they so dumb? I do think that OkCupid's version of testing is a little bit more insidious. I mean, Facebook's doesn't maybe necessarily have a direct impact on me. Well, especially me personally, I don't have a Facebook. But for OkCupid, people who are out there trying to online date, I mean, there's a lot of people who are really like maybe relying on that to meet someone and to be. I mean, you trust OkCupid. I mean, their whole steez is our matching algorithm, and for them to purposely sort of sabotage. twist that, sabotage their angle, I think really hurts the trust of their user base. I'm using you because I'm trusting you to match me with people who I'm supposed to be matched with, and now you come out and say that you have actually been playing a sick joke on me, n- maybe, and switching that around. I think it around. will create some funny stories. Personally, I think it will. <laughs> but create I understand. I do understand your point. To outsiders, yeah. but you know, <laughs> some people may have invested some time and actually sure. gone on dates with feelings, people who, you know, and, you know. I think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's move on to Google Corner, who's blog. got all of our data.
1: Okcupid.com, check it out. Ok trends, very interesting posts. But let's move on to Google corner as Rob mentioned. So there's a couple things I wanna cover. Number one, we reported on this a while ago that AdWords was making this big shift where if you were using exact match, by default, Google was going to set all of those terms to also be close variant matches. So let's say you were trying to match bearded marketers as a PPC term. Well, if there are some slight variations on that, like beard marketers or bearded market or something of that nature, it is possible now that these exact match words that you had, that you trusted with everything, this is exact match, now was not gonna be the case. Well, Google has heard the crying in the streets, the gnashing of teeth, and they have retracted that. So you can now opt out of that if you want to. So if that is something that you've heard and that caused you some heartache, Google has retracted a bit and there is a way to opt out We'll tweet out a link. No no reason to spend a lot of time on that. We'll tweet out a link that you can pay attention to and opt out of that if you want to. Also, I wanted to cover this. This is a bit technical, but there is a service out there, Google BigQuery, and it's essentially access to their cloud computing platform. So if you're not really versed into what that is, basically... If you're not well-versed in it, it might not actually be a good fit for you. But what you can have access to is an extreme amount of computing power to do a wider range of things, whether that is processing some huge data set for you, whether that's automating reports, whether that's actually leveraging Google's platform to drive how your app actually works. You can do a wider range of things, and it's a very powerful tool. don't want to get too much into the weeds into right. it. But just be aware that Google has opened up BigQuery, It can help you in a wider range of parts of your business if that is something where your business needs some help in. And I would say that honestly, it can replace spending time doing certain things. You can actually pretty easily use their farm of computers to automate some of these tasks. I love people having jobs, get that unemployment rate down. But there are some things that you yeah. can leverage, you know, their computing platforms to do. Abso-
0: it's absolutely the future of computing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point, I think a, a perfect example I run into all the time is having to crunch big number sets, big sure. data sets on my local computer here. And you can pretty easily just upload that stuff to BigQuery and have Google do all that number crunching for you. Right. And I don't need to have some crazy wig whiz bang computer i can have my little macbook i don't (laughs) need you know anything more than that because if i need to do some serious stuff i can have google do it for me
1: well yeah not just necessarily crunching numbers but also finding trends if you want to look at personalization personas we were talking about earlier on uh, you can leverage this platform to do that so if you are in a business that probably gets some substantial traffic or you're of a size that merits it you might want to check out BigQuery because you can do some pretty neat things with it last thing i'm going to talk about this is a very interesting article It's posted by Moz.com, and they had an article in there that talked about the value of something you might have heard Rob say many times on this show, Google Webmaster Tools. If you don't have it installed, I don't know what your deal is, but you should have it, and if you don't, you should pause the episode and do it right now. But the article was talking about the value of Webmaster Tools, and really at the heart of it, what they were talking about is one of the things that they've noticed in the industry. If you've worked in SEO for a while, you'll know disavow links became very popular. So Google came out and said, hey, we're going to start penalizing you if you have really poor links as part of your portfolio. This spent people crying, much like the AdWords thing I was talking about earlier on. And what Google was saying is, look, there are some scammy people out there and we know that some of y'all thought you were slick back in the day and you went to that link farm or that directory. I was one of them. Yeah, and and got your link to your site on there because you thought you were going to outsmart us and rank really highly well now if we see that as part of your portfolio we're actually going to punish you so you as a website owner need to actually go out and get your link removed from those places people were going crazy and one of the things that's come out about that is there's a lot of seo tools out there like moz like Majestic SEO and a bunch of other ones and they go out and crawl the site and will report back to you links to your site and what some of these directories and scammy sites have started doing is blocking the spiders from some of these tools like Majestic SEO and things like that so their links are actually not getting reported because they're apparently the belief is they're getting tired of these link removal requests. So what this article documents is Google Webmaster Tools because it's Googlebot and they actually want to be seen by Googlebot is one of the few now that is unblocked and will actually come back and report these bad links that you need to have removed. So Hmm. it's a very fascinating article that talks about why Google Webmaster Tools is still important. Even if you use something like Moz or Majestic to kind of check your work and you might find that some of your old past behaviors of getting some really shitty links are being hidden Mm -hmm. from some tools by these networks very fascinating we'll tweet out a link to check it out
0: I wonder if part of a lot of the sites blocking those tools like you were talking about is just simply because, you know, these tools have blown up. I feel like in the last Mm -hmm. couple of years, because I I guess computing has just gotten so cheap and bandwidth is so cheap, too. You know, I'm guessing tools like Moz and Majestic and some of these other competitive research tools. I mean, you're nailing my site all the time and I don't want you to, sure. <laughs> you know, I don't need you to. All I basically need is Googlebot to come to my site. I don't even care about the MSN bot who uses Bing. <laughs> so I just let Googlebot come to my site and that's it. That's the only kind of bot I allow. Right. Just because all these other things have popped up and You're I'm getting more of a
1: slammed. glass half full kind of person, I'm a, <laughs> I believe more the uh, negative aspect of that. But regardless, it's a very fascinating article. You own a site on the online space you care about SEO, definitely worth a read because it's some very fascinating data. That's gonna do it for us on episode number seventy four. And if you had a great time, we would appreciate a couple things. One, share with a friend, a colleague, as Rob would say, a lover, perhaps. Two, leave us a review on whatever channel you found us on, whether that's Stitcher, iTunes. Greatly appreciate it. It helps us understand where we're at with the show and what we maybe need to change. Also, if you'd like to be on the show or you have a topic, maybe you listen every week and you go, Those bearded guys, they're pretty smart, but they didn't think about this. Let us know. 904 270 9603. You can give us a call. You can text. Rob waits by the phone day and night. Or you can drop us a line at slash contact. We'd love to hear from you. Or potentially you're struggling with something you just don't really know where to go next the boss is frustrated with you let us know we got a lot of experience in the industry and we could probably help you out or put you in contact with someone that can again thank you so much for your time and we'll see you next week Gio.